Hello and welcome back to the new Political Economy of Europe podcast. You may be listening to us on SoundCloud or TuneIn, but we are also on Spotify, where you can now find all our episodes so far. We'll be joining other platforms in the near future and we'll keep you updated about it. Okay, on to the interview. Joining us this week as the last guest in this semester seminar series is Martin Sanbu. He works as a journalist, having joined the Financial Times in 2009 as the economics leader writer and where he now writes at the free lunch section. Previously, however, he taught and researched at Harvard, Columbia and the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. Martin visited University College Dublin to discuss the future of EU-China relations. But in this interview, he discusses his forthcoming book, The Economics of Belonging. Check the attached link in our SoundCloud platform for more information on it. He suggests that, yes, present political unrest, which is palpable across the European Union and North America, is indeed related to the economic transformations brought upon in the late 1970s and early 80s. But the culprit is not, as is often suggested, globalization. He and Aidan Regan discuss whether the reforms he proposes, such as more investment in skills and a closer cooperation between unions, government, and employer organizations, can be viewed as a new form of social democracy, or rather, a series of not necessarily ideological reforms to make democratic capitalism more functional. They also discuss the EU's importance as a global regulatory power and what this might mean for the UK in the aftermath of Brexit. That's all for me. So off to the interview. Okay, Martin, thank you for joining us here. New Thanks CD. for having me. It's great to have you. Um, so I read your book on the economics of belonging, forthcoming with Princeton University Press. Um, you might tell our listeners just what the overall theme and core question that you're addressing in this book. So it's something I've been thinking about for the last few years. Really, it's it's trying to work out my intellectual reaction to this backlash we've seen in politics, but give an economic account of it. And uh, we have plenty of examples now from the last couple of years where large parts of Western populations are turning against the sort of liberal order that we thought was kind of established for good after the Second World War. Uh, and in my view, uh, the reason that the main cause of that backlash is really economic. Mm. So we have started talking about the left behind. And I think the first point to recognize is that it's right. There are groups within all Western societies that have been given a bad deal economically and that have been falling behind those who have benefited from the changes over the last 40 years, roughly, since about the 80s. Uh, but the second point I try to make is that it's not about globalization, mm. because what you see is that this, this backlash against the liberal order, one component of it is to put up borders to say we don't want you know, the, the other, other countries are our rivals, foreigners take our jobs. Uh, and so it's a backlash against economic globalization. And even, even sort of, um, there's even a liberal version of this backlash, people who don't give up on liberal politics, but they still say globaliz globalization has gone too far. So I think that's a mistake, because I think when you start looking at what's happened in Western economies, the changes happened earlier. And I think really the key moment was the peak in industrial employment, factory jobs mm. in the late 70s. Since then, factory jobs have disappeared everywhere. Uh, manufacturing hasn't disappeared. Western mm. countries still produce a lot of goods, but it's really a productivity change. And that has 
completely changed the, the core of the economy the way it used to be in a way that actually affects some people, especially manual workers, often men, often people in uh, less urban areas, not the big cities, because they benefit from the new knowledge industries. So there have been huge changes. Globalization has gone a long way that, but I think if you look closely, globalization is not really the culprit. So that's a diagnosis. And I'm trying to say, look, if we really want to save the liberal order, we clearly need to solve this economic problem, give people a reason to believe in the system working for them again. But we don't do that by giving up on globalization. Mm. We do it by going through a lot of policy areas where we try to change our policy in a way that starts including everyone again. And if we do that, that's my argument, we have some hope of defeating this backlash against liberal politics as well. And in the book, I think you make a very convincing case that technology really is at the center of this. And there's a variety of statistics you use in the book showing that it wasn't China, it wasn't the emergence of the mass factory in China that undermined a lot of the industrial employment in the Western world, in the USA. Rather, it was technological change. And therefore, it poses questions about the ability to adapt to that technological change and invest in new forms of technology for the new economy. That, that's exactly right. Technology always changes, but what has happened is that we basically can produce more stuff, more things, with fewer hands. There has been some shift of jobs because of globalization, but I show in the book that that's actually a minor part of the loss in factory jobs. Because as I said, actually we produce pretty much as, as much as we ever have in terms of uh, factory output. But we don't need that many people to use it anymore, and that's because we have robots, we have better production processes. And that's a good thing, right? If we can produce more with fewer people, that's in itself a good thing. Productivity is good. It's what makes us richer. But we haven't managed well the transition from a world where a lot of people were employed in factories to a world where factories don't need many people and we need to find other useful things for those people to do. That has to do with partly doing better training, but partly also making sure that the geographical economy is organized in such a way that people who live outside the big cities have good jobs, have good incomes, and so on. And I've talked about deindustrialization, but this is still going on. So we still see technology coming in to make all kinds of other sectors more productive. You can see it in retail, shop retailing, for example. You, can, you will probably see it in transport and lorry driving, if we get autonomous lorries, for example. There are all kinds of jobs that we know are going to disappear because they can be done without humans. And we really need to be better this time around at having policies that help those people who would otherwise work in those jobs get good new jobs. So and what we know from the research, of course, is that with uh, deindustrialization, um, you also get occupational upgrading in the sense of there are more good jobs being created than bad jobs, but the accessibility to those good jobs typically in service industries, whether they're internationally traded services and ICT or finance or in the non-traded high-tech services, education or healthcare, that whilst there's more jobs available in those sectors uh, for graduates in effect, there's simply not enough jobs in terms of the volume effect in order to lift up enough people, which of course is central to what the OECD is saying at the moment about the stagnation, if not the uh, decline of the middle class in effect. 
So, but that's also very concentrated in cities because to access those uh, interpersonal high-tech services jobs, you often have to basically live in a metropolitan city. So that clearly poses challenges as well. So how do governments respond to this? Well, there are, there are many answers and I encourage you to read the book. It comes out in the spring of 2020. But just, just to take what you said about how when the old jobs go, new jobs come along and some are better but some are worse, or at least not as good, or maybe just as bad. But in practice, you've had this bifurcation, this polarization between high-paid, highly skilled, often uh, jobs <coughs> in high-intensive, knowledge-intensive services, and then you have a lot of really bad jobs in sort of uh, you know plain service industries. You know, we're talking about hospitality, delivery jobs, all of these sort of new jobs that don't pay very well. Burger flipping is a kind of caricature, right? Um, the point I tried to make in the book is that that outcome is also amenable to policy. So how many good jobs and how many bad jobs you get in the job mix that replaces the old one is partly down to policy. So you think about the countries that have managed this transition better, that's for example the Nordics, they tend to have um, a kind of economic environment in place that actually makes it really hard to employ cheap labor. You're not allowed. It's uh, you know there are not necessarily high minimum wages, but uh, you know, union collective agreements and so on. That uh, that means that companies can't really employ cheap labor. Mm. Labor and the result is that they invest in capital, create more productive jobs. Uh, that's not all of the recipe. You also need to make sure that the the people themselves have the skills to avail themselves of more capital-intensive, more, uh, more high-productivity jobs. So training, education is a big part of it. And again, you see that the countries that actually put the most money into this, into helping people shift from dying jobs into the good kind <coughs> of new jobs, if you spend more money on it, it actually works. You, you mm. manage to do it better. And you need a sufficient number of jobs overall. So one thing is the mix. The other is you need to kind of keep pushing the economy forward. So you, you can't be too timid in terms of how much you're willing to stimulate the economy. And what we've had since the 70s, all the policymakers got burned by high inflation and, in my view, are far too cautious about stimulating the economy. But what you see is that it's only when you stimulate sort of beyond what you think conventionally that the economy can take. That's when you start bringing people in from the sidelines, the people who are really the most vulnerable. Mm. So it's what they call it the high pressure economy in some parts of, of American economics, I think is a good term. So I think you can even go back to Keynes. Mm. Keynes said, you know, you shouldn't try to stop the boom, you should try to kind of keep a semi-permanent mm. boom going. So always try to, you know, try to go a little bit ahead of the speed limit of the economy and you'll find that the speed limit itself goes up. So when I was reading the book, I was when you were talking a lot about the kind of northern European models and collective bargaining and the different wage setting institutions, which of course evolved out of the Rhine Meidner model of effectively investing in technology and, and new forms of production in order to increase the overall wage level to basically compete on, on quality instead of price, and this would improve overall productivity. And a part of me when I was reading the book was saying, so maybe the answer is actually a new variant of social democracy. That's arguably what the core message is. You can call it that uh, if you want. So the title of the book is economic of, Economics of Belonging, uh, because I think I don't care too much about labels, mm. but what I do care about is to not confuse particular institutions and policy solutions with the function of those institutions and policies. So for example, in the Nordics, 
the reason why you've had high wages at the bottom is because you've had a well-functioning tripartite labor market institutional system with uh, employers, unions, and to some extent the government, the state, working together to, to basically set wages across a lot of the economy. To have that, yeah, you need this the same historical background. You can't just transplant this. Mm -hmm. But you can think about what the economic function was or is of those arrangements and see are there ways to mimic it. So for example, if you don't have broad union coverage, then what you can do instead to try to lift up wage levels at the bottom is you have a higher minimum wage. So you can use a minimum wage to affect the same results as you had in, have had in the Nordics, which is partly that companies say, okay, it's too expensive to employ lots of labor, so let's invest in machines instead to make the jobs more, more productive, more capital intensive. Uh, and I think this principle carries all across. I, I don't call it social democracy because it's not about going back to what mm. we had in the 50s and 60s, is to take what worked then and try to find, sometimes the same, but otherwise alternative new policies that have the same function and effect. And would it require public investment, fundamentally, more expenditure on <clears throat> those things that improve human capital formation plus productivity improvements, which basically means government spending more on education, R&D? I think it depends a bit on which countries you talk about. I don't think it requires unheard of levels of public spending, but countries with small states, think about the US, they probably do have to spend some more. But you know, France spends more than half of its GDP in mm. public spending and investment. I don't think it needs to spend more. It might have to rethink about what it spends on, on what. So I don't think this is, this is another reason why I try to avoid kind of labels that come with a lot of baggage like social democracy. Because I don't actually think these are necessarily leftist policies or big state policies. It's about using the power of the state in a smart way and focus on things that actually create productivity overall. Um, but it does not involve, for example, state ownership in particular. Mm. That's not a big part of my argument. It doesn't really focus very much on redistribution of the tax system. It's much more thinking about how you design markets in such a way that most people actually get channeled into productive activities and therefore get paid well. Mm. So it's, it's more about market design really than about expanding the state. But who, who designs the markets? It is the state. So it is clearly about an involved state. And yes, it does need to have a certain size and it needs to provide the public goods that are essential. So but if one is to have a, an economics of belonging, and I think the word belonging is quite interesting here, I think it kind of resonates a lot with the kind of world that we're living in at the moment, that maybe there's a sense of a lack of belonging. Mm -hmm. um, what kind of story would policymakers have to tell to generate that sense of belonging? Well, I think well, you need to tell the story, but I think you also actually need to maybe show as much as you tell, because Every politician has kept talking about how we're all in this together and try to speak a language of common purpose. But that's part of why so many people are disillusioned with politics, because the action on the ground isn't there. So yes, you need to tell a story, but you actually need to bring the goods. Uh, but I think, I think one thing you can do is to explain how there are reforms you can make that are not extreme, even though they may be radical, and to say that these are designed for an economy that is productive and it's not about taking away from some and give to the other, even though on the margin, you know, you probably do want to rein in some of the worst abuses in the most unequal economies, but it's about making 
everyone a productive member of the economy. But we realize that it's not people's own fault that they're not productive. It could be that they are, for example, in left behind parts of the country because the technological changes we've seen affect different parts of the country very differently. Cities benefit. Small towns that could be good for manufacturing in the past don't benefit so much. So you need to you need kind of re-engineer your economics and your economy. But I think the, the main message has to be we do this in order to have national economies that work for everyone again. And thinking about the European political space, what exactly do you how do you see the EU's role in all of this, the European Union in particular? Yes. Well, what's very <coughs> interesting about the European Union is how pretty much every EU member state has this same problem of inequality having increased to a greater or lesser extent, but certainly a separation of successful cities mm. and lagging behind or even falling behind hinterlands of those cities. So a lot of the solutions really are at national level. Uh, but I think one thing that works well in the EU is that you, you can use the common institutions and the common rules to avoid races to the bottom. Mm. So you can use the EU layer to make sure that if a country tries to reform in a way that brings its own territory together, tries to bring the benefits of the thriving cities to include the hinterlands that are lagging behind, you can try to do that without falling foul of uh, you know, some, some reason to think that capital would escape and go somewhere else where, where there are weaker or looser policies, for example. So in your seminar today, which you provided to our students, you talked a lot about EU-China relations. Yes. Um, but in that seminar, you mentioned the importance of connection. And I think connecting uh, peoples and connecting cities and towns in the EU is something that I think resonates very strongly with European citizens. I, I think that's right. And I think, going back to your question about what the EU level can do, you know, it can try to, first of all, push a kind of, present a narrative to all Europeans along which all the nation states can come along and also provide some infrastructure spending and sort of vision for how all of Europe, the European continent, can be you know, physically connected together in a way that it isn't at the moment. It's not just about physical connections and infrastructure, that's a big part of it. Uh, it's also about the, what I call the, the, the software of economic connectivity, you know, making sure that you can actually buy the same product online no matter where, where in the EU you are, for example. Or, you know, buy a mobile telephone plan in whichever country you want. In a true single market, where you are shouldn't really matter. And today, it really matters a lot. It matters inside countries, and that's something ultimately national governments have to do. It also matters across the whole EU. So what you really want is an ambitious EU-level plan and vision combined with national plans that go along the same narrative of bringing people together physically uniting people. I think that's a narrative that could be, could have a very, could have very strong appeal. Mm. Uh, it does probably involve spending some money on EU level on the overall European public goods and connectivity uh, elements. I'm thinking you, you probably want to have in 10, 20 years, a pan-European electricity grid. So you need to build interconnectors between countries. You want a much more pan-European railway system. So you need to try and combine national train operators. All of these things have to happen. But they really have to be done both at the national level and at the EU level at the same time. And you, you also mentioned in your seminar today the importance of EU competition law, that 
in many ways that in the EU, there's often this kind of Google envy that we don't have big, huge, profitable global corporations. And therefore, what the EU needs to do is allow for large multinationals to have larger markets and so on. Basically, the US model, um, whereas actually they ought to be promoting uh, the fact that EU competition law encourages more competition and arguably more mid-level, mid-sized firm competition and product, uh, technological developments. Yeah, I, I think this envy of big champions is, is completely misguided and is really missing what Europe has done well. Uh, so I don't think it counts as a success for an economy to have huge digital behemoths that make a lot of money, actually extract a lot of profit from the economy. Uh, through a surveillance-intensive surveillance advertising business, which is how Google and Facebook make their money. Um, so I think Europe needs to be aware that actually, compared to the US, it has been reasonably, it is quite a lot better at avoiding this problem of the left behind. It's less extreme in Europe than in the US. Part of that, I think, is because it's it's prevented some of the concentration, market concentration that's happened in the US over the last 20, 30 years. It's not just in digital, it's mm. in all kinds of industries uh, where you see that compared to 30 years ago, the US economy has become less competitive. And that means more money is taken out as profits rather than wages. That has regional and uh, inequality implications and prices are higher for ordinary people. In the EU, we've managed to avoid that. We actually moved in the right direction making things more competitive. And that's partly because we've given competition policy to the EU level. So national companies can't capture national regulators anymore. Uh, but the result has actually been a more equitable distribution of resources in the mm. economy. Europe has its big problems with its own left behinds. But you just look at the numbers and it's clear that it's not as bad as in the US. So in this country, obviously, people are thinking a lot about Brexit. Mm. And the big concern that many people have is that the UK leaves the European Union and they strike trade deals with the United States of America and they encourage a race to the bottom in terms of regulatory standards and therefore Ireland is going to be squeezed between the aggressive neoliberal Singapore on the Thames type model in the UK vis-a-vis -vis the more social oriented social market economy of the EU. How do you see that relationship with the UK and the European Union playing out, assuming that there is an orderly exit of sorts and some sort of future trade agreement is signed? So I think it's correct to be worried because when you look at the debate in the UK, there's, there's almost nothing left of the argument for Brexit now except the ability to do a trade deal with the US and, and some other countries. What hasn't quite sunk in yet in the UK public and indeed much of the political class is just how different an economy the US is, and in particular, how differently regulated it is. It, it is very regulated, but in a very different way and largely incompatible way compared to Europe. So in the global economy today, you sort of largely have to adopt either the European model or the US model of product regulation. You know, Possibly a Chinese model is rising. Uh, but there isn't really a, a place for a middling economy to, to strike out its own course. There would be no point. So for the UK, there will be a decision about whether to strike a meaningful trade deal with the US. Uh, and if it's meaningful, it will involve shifting the regulatory system. In that case, I think your worry is quite, uh, quite correct. It would be hard for, let's say, Irish agriculture, which because of quality standards is more expensive than uh, US style agriculture, it would be hard to compete in the UK market, for example. Mm. 
Um, but I think in the UK, once this becomes visible, it will actually be much harder to sell a US trade deal, at least one that's in any way meaningful, uh, for the same reasons. The UK is a lot more European than it tends to think. Mm in terms of environmental regulations, product safety regulations, even working regulations, um, food standards. In all of these ways, I think most British people are actually quite happy with what they have. And once they look at what the alternative would be, are not necessarily going to want to give up um, on the European way of doing things. So I suspect Brexit will be a rather disappointing, if it, if it happens, a rather disappointing experience in the end. I think there are a lot of strong economic and social political preference reasons why the UK will continue to stick very closely to European rules, of course, with less influence than, than it has had as a member. So if I'm right, you'll sort of dodge the bullet here in, in Ireland and you won't actually have to deal with this, this very difficult problem. Uh, time will tell. But I think the attraction of the European model will actually prove that it's quite strong even after Brexit. And do you think that there is a concern at the EU level that should the UK leave and strike a deal and things improve, let's say there is more deregulation and there's more liberalisation and there's a sort short-term effect of inward investment, you know, finance, City of London does fine, that actually the economy on aggregate grows quite strongly in the UK, if not necessarily distributionally between the regions that other member states of the EU will say at that point, oh, maybe actually the Brits had a point in getting out of this. I think the worry is different. I think the worry is more, especially from the countries closest to the UK geographically, the Netherlands, the Nordics, uh, there's a worry about competition, that the UK, if it has too much access to the European market, will undercut them in their own market if it doesn't have to follow the same rules. Uh, that is the one I hear expressed much more. The worry you mentioned was expressed early in the process, but I think the, the mess that Britain has made of it really uh, has removed that from the agenda. Could it come back? I suppose it, I suppose it could come back, but so far the EU strategy has been to link market access very closely to regulatory alignment mm. following the rules. So it may well be that the UK does okay, but that it does okay by not actually moving away all that far. If it does move away all that far, I have a feeling that things will get worse before they get better. So yeah, theoretically, your, your problem may arise, but I think it's quite far down the line. Okay, Martin, well, this has been great. Thank you for your time. Thank you.